Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Let's talk about sex. It's important that we talk about sex and sexuality because that's often a reflection of how we view individuals. Paul calls us into holiness, and the holiness that we're called into may seem a little bit different than just saying no. You're listening to The Holy Life by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our scripture reading tonight is from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, one of his earliest letters, 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll read verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Listen to Paul and to the Holy Spirit. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, holy, and that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, And that in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And in the Greek, it says God called us in holiness. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you will not be dependent on anyone. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a young person, high school age, I used to go to something called All Ontario Conventions. All Ontario Conventions. That was a gathering in Ontario, Canada, of all the young people society from all the Christian Reformed churches spread all over uh, the province. And those are wonderful gatherings. We would go to some university, and we'd be there for two or three or four days, and we'd have a great time. We'd worship together, and instead of doing it with organs, we do it with guitars, which we thought at that time was like really important, and now I don't feel that way anymore, but that's how I felt then. And we met people from exciting places like Dunville and Wellenport, and we just had a really great time. We met tons and tons of people, met lots of girls, and and really enjoyed ourselves. And there were speakers and things to do. And in the afternoon at these conventions, and I know it's the same at at the big conventions that some of you went to, they would always have workshops. So you'd choose workshops and you'd go and you'd sit and you'd be instructed. And these workshops would be on things like prayer. And big one was always Christian contemporary music versus secular music. And how to lead your youth group. But by far the most popular and best attended workshop was always the one on dating, relationships, and sex. 
all of us young people were trying to figure out what it means to love Jesus, to be a holy person, to follow him, and to deal with these feelings that we were having. We were all teenagers walking through a, a hurricane of hormones and trying to figure out how to be holy. We were not the first people to deal with this issue. Sexuality and holiness have been an issue from the very beginning of the church. First Thessalonians, as I said, is either Paul's first letter or his second letter, but it's one of his earliest letters. And if you read it, it's very clear that one of the issues that he's grappling with, one of the issues he's confronting the church with, is how they live as faithful Christians and how they deal with their sexuality as faithful Christians. It's a big topic. And if you knew what sexual culture was like in Thessalonica, you'd understand why it was a big topic. We think that uh, we live in a sexually permissive culture, but when you compare it to what was happening in Thessalonica, um, maybe we don't have it so bad. Prostitution was legal, and it wasn't just legal back then in that culture, it was accepted. It was perfectly acceptable for a man, married or single, to go to a prostitute. It was just a way of blowing off steam. It was like going out for a round of golf. Sex was also part of the religious life and some of the cults and shrines in the town. So if you were a worshiper of Kabiris or Dionysus, sexual acts might be part of your devotion to this God. Accept it. Many husbands in that culture had mistresses, and this too was considered no big deal. That was part of man's right. Here's what Demosthenes, the great Greek orator, said. He came a little before this, but here's how he summons up the sexual ethic of his day. If Demosthenes was leading a seminar for 17-year-olds in that culture, this is how he would instruct them. Mistresses we keep for our pleasure concubines for our daily and physical well-being, and wives in order to bear us legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians. Wow. Now, there are all sorts of ways in which these, all those things strike us as appalling. It seems awfully permissive. It seems really, really um, unequal. Women are very much put on the bottom of that spectrum. Women are treated as property. Women are treated, taken advantage of. And you can see that Paul agrees with that. Is it in verse 6? No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. He's very worried about the inequities of this system. But what interests me is that behind this sexual ethic that you found in Thessalonica that Paul is pushing against is a view of what a human being is. There's a view in that kind of culture that leads to that kind of behavior of what a human being is. Human beings are creatures of appetites. We are creatures of wants and desires, and the good life, the full life, is fulfilling all your wants and desires. If you want a good life, you should try to fill as many of your desires as you can. If we want to name this, we'll call it homo consumptus, man of consumption. That's what we are creatures of appetites. Paul alludes to this kind of mindset with respect to the pagans in verse 5. He says, the pagans are controlled by passionate lust, desires, creatures of desire. In Ephesians 4, 
he's even more emphatic and more descriptive. He talks about the heathens who have abandoned sensitivity, care, and given themselves over to sensuality in a continual lust for more. Homo consumptus, creatures of appetites. I want what I want, and no one should stop me. Now, as backward and as bad as this sounds to us, this is the water that the people of Thessalonica were used to swimming in. And it seems, the reason Paul writes these words, is that the new Christians, even though they'd given their life to Jesus and had an experience of the Holy Spirit and started to follow him, while they had given their hearts to Jesus, were having a little more trouble giving their wills and their bodies to Jesus. Old habits die hard. And so some of them, while they were worshiping, were still participating in these accepted sexual habits of the town. And Paul is very emphatic. Don't do that. It doesn't treat your brother and sister well. And it is not pleasing to God. Stop it. Don't practice fornication. In our culture, we don't have the same sexual ethic that they had in Thessalonica. Prostitution is illegal just about everywhere in the United States. And it's certainly frowned upon even in places where it is legal. Concubines have fallen out of fashion. And if a man has a mistress, that is a terrible thing in our culture. And yea for all those things. So you might be tempted to say, oh, we're doing really well. We don't have these Thessalonian problems, but I think that homo consumptus, that sense of our appetites and we should be allowed to satisfy them no matter what, very much lives in our society today. We may not have open prostitution, but we've got pornography. It's everywhere and it's growing and it's all pervasive. According to the Christian website, Triple X Church, and this is back in 2007, there were already 11 million Americans who met the definition of being addicted to pornography. And in 2007, one out of every four searches on the internet were related to porn. And porn is becoming socially acceptable, right? Um, certainly when I was a kid, if someone was caught looking at porn, that was considered... Um, uh, embarrassing. But nowadays, there are lots of people, if you say porn is wrong, there are lots of people who argue with you and will do so shamelessly. A couple of years ago, actually it was more than a couple, it was probably back in 2007 or thereabouts when my children were still young, we went to visit New York City. And we went into Times Square, which is what you do when you visit New York City. And as you know, when you go to Times Square, what you do is you look up because they got all these enormous bright billboards and they're amazing and they're fun to look at. And while I was there, I looked up and there, about 10 stories high on one of the billboards was the latest movie from Jenna Jameson. Now, maybe you don't know who Jenna Jameson is, and if you don't, that's good for you. She was the most important, important, most famous porn star of that era. And so you had Lion King, Cinderella, Jenna Jameson. Porn is everywhere, and it's becoming more and more acceptable. So the cultural forms have changed, but that notion of what a human being is is still completely with us. That we are creatures of appetites, and no one should tell us 
to quell those appetites. And if we want something, by all means, we ought to have it. Homo consumptus. And that's not just in the realm of sex, of course, right? We're trained in that homo consumptus mindset in all realms of consumerism. In some ways, just about every ad we see tells us that if we just have this thing or this experience, we will be full and happy. Paul, in this passage, holds up for the Thessalonians and for us not only a different way to look at their sexuality. He's not simply challenging them about the way they're living out their sex lives. He's offering them a different view of what a human being is. He's saying, we're not homo consumptus. We're not creatures of appetites. We are called to be sanctified. We are holy creatures. Each one of you should learn to control his or her own body in a way that is holy and honorable. We are called to holiness. We are called to be holy. Now, what does that mean? If I tell you you're called to be holy, where does your mind go? What do you think? I remember when I was young that when I thought of being called to be holy, I thought that meant saying no to things, to stepping away from things, to pushing things away. So uh, I heard it as a call to self-control. So sexual holiness meant saying no to my sexual desires and, and not doing things that I shouldn't. And holiness in speech meant saying no to swearing and to taking the Lord's name in vain. And holiness in the rest of my life meant things like you know, don't spend money on Sunday and don't lie to your parents. So I saw holiness as a way of stepping away, pushing back your desires, pushing away from the world and getting away from those things that were evil. And if I had a picture in my mind of what holiness would be, it would have been like the conventional view of what an angel is. What's, what's holy look like? Well, angels are holy. And even though this is a false view of angels, the picture I had in my mind was of this, this white creature who floated above uh, and sort of transcended the churn of the world and its desires. So I saw holiness as a call to, to suppress my desires. That view of holiness as suppression of desires was unintentionally strengthened by teachers who told me what holiness means. They told me correctly that to be holy means to be set apart. Something is holy when it is set apart. And so in my mind, I said, oh, there it is. There it is again, right? It's being set apart, away from your desires, away from the things of this world, above the churn. That's not what Paul means by holiness. That's not what scripture means by holiness. To be holy in this world, of course it means saying no to things. Of course it means self-control. But it, in the way that the scripture defines holiness is not primarily no. Holiness in the scriptures is more yes. It is a deep, profound, wholehearted yes to the things of God and the way of his kingdom. Of course, holiness means saying no to things, but more than saying no, it means completely and wholeheartedly with all your desires and all your passions, throwing yourself into the things of God. So if you want a picture of holiness, not Christian holiness, but an analogy of what holiness looks like, think of an athlete, an Olympic athlete, someone who's absolutely in love with her discipline, say she's a marathon runner, and who just wants nothing more than to be in the Olympics. What does she do? She sets herself apart. She sets herself apart for training. 
It governs what she eats. It governs when she gets up in the morning and when she goes to bed. It governs her relationships, whether she gets involved with people and how deeply every part of her life is set apart for this goal. And she's saying no to many things, but her life isn't primarily about no's. It's primarily about the yes of the sport that she loves and wanting to be an athlete and wanting to make the Olympics. When Paul calls us to a life of holiness, he's calling us to a passionate yes in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. He's telling us that the way of homo consumptus is not the way of fullness, it is the way of death and emptiness, and the way of fullness and the way of happiness and the way of joy is the way of Jesus. So sexual holiness is not abstention. Sexual holiness is using that desire properly within the context of a relationship and growing it to its fullness in marriage and allowing sexuality in marriage to form a bond of intimacy so deep that it doesn't just bring joy to you, but it becomes the kind of joy that overflows into others and becomes the kind of life that other people can lean on and learn from and be blessed by. And holiness in speech is not just refraining from using foul language. It's using speech to lift other people up and to bless them and to praise God and to seek the truth and then speak it, or to create beautiful words that speak to people's hearts. A holy person doesn't float above the world. A holy person is totally immersed in God's world as his child and filled with his Holy Spirit. Verse 7 is a nice way of putting it. I mentioned it when I read it. It says, you are called in holiness. Not to it, like it's out there somewhere. In holiness like you're immersed in it. Craig Barnes teaches at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and he wrote uh, a reflection on something that, for me, is a picture of holiness, an installation service he conducted at a church. One of his students graduated from seminary and was installed in a tiny little church in the Midwest, a church so small that it was hard to find on, on his map quest, he said. And when he got there, he preached in the morning, uh, it wasn't, wasn't very impressive. It was this ramshackle building with a linoleum floor and fluorescent lights that flickered. Uh, when he went up to preach at the mic, the mic squealed. But the church was full of earnest rural folks, their faces all listening. And after the service was over, they all went downstairs and again, Classic church basement, low ceiling, ancient uh, plywood uh, walls, you know, paneling, ugly paneling, and then church bulletins all over the walls. But in the middle, there were tables, old tables with gingham tablecloths and plates of fried chicken and jello salad with little bits of orange floating in it and potato salad and lemonade and country crock. And the place was full of people. And the children were running around and laughing and the people were in circles talking to each other and in front of the young minister who was being installed, a line started to form. People of every generation, one after another, coming up to shake this young man's hand, to thank him for coming, many of them with tears in their eyes. 
And Barnes wrote, when I saw that, I felt like I needed to take off my shoes because I felt like I was standing on holy ground. Ordinary people, completely full of passion for Christ and his church and full of holiness, which is what you are too when Christ fills you and fills us. Amen. Lord Jesus, make us holy. Make us holy in the deepest, richest sense of the word. People filled to top to bottom with your spirit. People deeply engaged in your work. People who love our neighbor from the bottom of our heart. And people who love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, Lord. And thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that, that fills us with a holiness that is beyond our power and keeps us going when we fall. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.